0: point five I'm gonna call it of our series hashtag not my church somebody did point out to me last week as we kind of started this series they said last week you talked about all these great things about our church and behind you it said hashtag not my church I don't really understand touche <laughs> touche well the idea for this series came um, actually a couple of years ago um, it was just right after Donald Trump was elected president massive movement went through our country all of these people who had not elected him began to say that he was hashtag not my president didn't matter what it was that he did if it was something that they um, didn't like or didn't think that a president should do then the hashtag would pop up behind whatever it was and say hashtag not my president it's not who he is not my president at all you know and I I love I love how God works because this last week there was a razor company who put out an ad, right? Gillette put out an ad about what it meant to be a real man and that we should step up and behind their commercial, all of these people on social media started throwing away their Gillette razors and said, hashtag not my razor. And I was like, Oh my goodness, we've gone out of control. But like most things in the world, when I watch them, one of the very first things I begin to think about is, is what does God think about this? What does God think about these movements of hashtag not mine, whatever it is, this anti whatever. In fact, has there ever been a moment where God's looked out and said, hashtag not mine at us. And then I realized in the Old Testament in the days of Noah, there was a moment where God looked out at all of his creation, the people that he loved and he saw the evil in their hearts and all the things that they were doing. he said, hashtag not my creation. And he wiped it all out, sent a gigantic flood. Now, interestingly enough, if you take and add up the generations, it was about 2000 years after Adam that this happened. You say, Charles, well, why is that interesting? Well, check it out. The church, the church in just a couple of decades will celebrate its 2000th birthday. And I think, I think that there are moments when God has looked down. In fact, we're going to read about some of them where God looks down at his church and he says, hashtag, that's not my church. That's not what I started. That's not what Jesus died for. You guys are not living out what I've called you to live out. he says, hashtag not my church. Well, our, our text for the next several weeks comes out of the book of Revelation. In fact, John writes, he records for Jesus seven letters to seven churches that Jesus gives them a message that he says, you are not doing what I have laid out for you to be about. And so over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at these letters and we're going to tear them apart. And we're going to look at what they were doing right. And we're going to look at what they were doing wrong. And we're going to say, what does that mean for us today? So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to open them up to the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation is the last book in your Bible. So if you've got the paper version, flip all the way to the very back. If you've got the digital version, scroll all the way down while you're scrolling there or flipping there. All right. I want to tell you a couple of things about these seven churches. Here's the first one. These seven churches were real churches, right? They were not something that was imaginary or made up. They were real churches with a real context, right? And they had a real congregation of people that were sitting inside of these buildings. In other words, they were real people in a real place with real problems. They weren't any different than you and me in our church here. They were real. But here's the second thing I want you to notice is that while they were real churches that were really being written to by Jesus about the things that were really going on inside of their church, that they were also a representation of all churches. In fact, I don't think it's any coincidence that there are seven churches selected. You say, well, why seven? Well, seven is that like divine, holy, completion, perfection number. How many days in a week? Oh, some of you got that. All right. How many days in a week? Seven, sir. God. Thank you very much. Well done. Yeah. And there's seven because it represented this completeness and this perfection. And so anytime that you see the number seven begin to show up in the scriptures, then you understand that it is almost always a symbol of this divine completion. And so these seven churches, Represent all churches. In fact, as we read, you're going to be like, you know what? That church sounds a whole lot like this denomination that I know some about. And I, you know, that tribe of people and how they do things, this letter could like totally describe them. And you're probably right. It could. Or maybe you'll be like, you know what? I know about this one church that meets in this one place and that letter is totally them. They're doing all of those things, but they've this, and that's what God would have against them today. And you know what? You're right because these seven letters represent all of the churches throughout all of history, right? These are the same things that the church continues to deal with over and over and over again. In fact, a lot of smarter people than me have said this. They've said, you should learn from history. In fact, if you refuse to learn from history, then you are what? Doomed to repeat it. And so I believe that these seven churches were selected intentionally because they represent the entire landscape of what churches look like, both now and now. And throughout all of history now here's one other thing that I want to make a note about as we get ready to talk about the book of Revelation the book of Revelation comes with a unique promise it's not found anywhere else in Scripture it starts with this promise it says blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it what an incredible promise what it more than anything as we go through this study right here's what i want to encourage you to do i want to encourage you to take the things that we talk about and go back home and read them again i want to encourage you that before you come in for the next week we're going to go straight to the next letter we're not going to skip one of them right so read ahead It's okay. It's not cheating. Right? Read ahead and look at it and say to yourself and maybe even go to a group and talk with your group about where is this thing going? What is this letter saying? What do you guys think? What did you think about what the pastor said about this? What do you think he's going to say about this? That's good. And I want to encourage you to do that. Why? Because Jesus said blessed is the one who reads these words. The ones who hear these words and the ones who keep what is written. And I say all of that to also tell you there is so much that is here. This first letter, I was like 10 pages deep in my notes of what I wrote on stuff and I was like, they're not going to sit for two hours to listen to all these (laughs) things that I know about this church. So there's gonna be a lot more that's there than what I'm going to give you. And so it's good. It is good to go and to look things up and to research things and to read about things and to pray about the things that you see and hear about today. Well, with that, let's read the very first letter. Revelations chapter two, verse one, it says this. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. The words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you've even found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and that you have not grown weary. But yet, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If you don't, I'll come to you and I'll remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Yet, yet you have this for you, that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, and I hate that too. And anybody who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you. Thank you for this letter that, you wrote to the church at Ephesus thank you that we as a church get to tackle the things that you talked about to them God that we can use them to help to fashion us more like what you want us to be to chase after that calling of what it means to be a great church God, I pray that we would hear these words, God, that we would be blessed by it and that we would keep them. We just give you all of the glory and the honor in your name. Amen. Well, I told you that I called this week 1.5 because last week we did actually start the series and we laid down a foundation for the series, whether you realized it or not. in talking about the fact that Jesus is the builder, the architect of the church. He's the one who builds it, not us. Amen. Right. I am so glad that that is the truth. And, you know, last week, as we shared the stories of what God has been doing here, we saw that he is a personal God. He is a relational God. You know, sometimes we we think of God as this watchmaker God, right? He put all the pieces together. He wound the clock and he started it. And then he just sits back and he watches everything go. Some people describe God that way. But as we shared the stories over and over again about how God has invaded people's lives that are right here in this room and how he has changed them and shaped them and molded them, it becomes very difficult to believe that God is not a personal and relational God. And in case you weren't sure about that, I love how he opens up this letter because he he says to the angel, and by the way, the angel is the Greek word messenger, messenger. Right. And so the way that I understand this is he's actually saying to the preacher, to the pastor of this church, which is nice. I'm glad he's saying, hey, here it is. Tell him this. And then he says, I am the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. In other words, I hold all of you in my hand. My stars are the churches, they are the prophets, they are the preachers, they are the pastors of the churches. And he holds them in his right hand. Man, there's no better place that I want to be than in God's right hand. And then he says this. He says, I am the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. In chapter 1, John tells us that the lampstands are the seven churches. So we don't have to guess about what this imagery is. Jesus is saying, I am walking amongst all seven of these churches. You know what I love about that is not only that it tells me that Jesus is personal and intimate and is walking amongst his churches, but it means that Jesus is walking amongst all churches because we just said that these seven churches represented the totality of churches, of every kind of church. And it doesn't matter if your church is a good church, a middle of the road church, or a bad church. Because there were churches that are in here that we're gonna see over the next several weeks that they were flat out bad. Jesus had a lot against them. And you know what? He still walked amongst them. What an incredible God that is. Now it's, With each of these churches, we find a really personal note because Jesus is a personal God and he does walk amongst his people. He wanted them to know that he knows him. So he starts off by saying, I know your works. He gives them a commendation. Now, There's a a simple pattern that I want you to know that as you're looking at these letters that you can use to kind of say, what is the structure? It's the same structure that shows up in all of them. Um, There are a few exceptions in the course of the letters, but it's this. He starts off with a commendation, something that tells them, hey, you've done well at this. And then he moves from this commendation to a complaint. Here's what I have against you. And from the complaint, he moves to here's the cause of that complaint. And then finally, he says, here is the cure for the cause and the complaint so that I can continue to commend you. So as you're looking at these letters, you can tear them apart using that four-piece structure. What does Jesus commend them for? What does Jesus complain to them about? What does he say is the cause of it? And finally, what is the cure? Now, Jesus opens up with his commendation of the church at Ephesus. He tells them, I know your works. I know what you've been doing. And I know that you are persevering. You are continuing to do good. Now, the church at Ephesus was an incredibly desirable church. In fact, the word Ephesus actually means desire. And I don't think it's any, uh, any accident that they're the very first one that Jesus talks to. For a couple of reasons. The first one is, is that they have probably the biggest thing against them out of all of them. And he says, I want you to know that this thing is first that I'm going to talk to you about. And the second thing is, is that they were the first church that was started in this region. Paul went to this area and started the church at Ephesus almost 40 years before this letter was written. Could you imagine? I mean, we think of Paul as like the heavy hitter. Could you imagine if Paul was your pastor instead of me? Right? Like you guys would be amazing if you had Paul instead of me. So Paul started the church and he was with them for three years. And he used that church to become a base of operations to reach all of Southwest Asia. In fact, the other six churches that are talked about were all plants from the church at Ephesus. So he starts there. They were the gateway to everything. And he says, now Paul... Paul was not the only great preacher that this church had. Because after Paul came Timothy, his disciple, right? And Paul, while Timothy was there, he writes three letters to the church. You get the book of Ephesians written to him, which is just to them about the things that are going on. And then he writes two letters to Timothy. He says, Timothy, I know you're struggling with some things, but here I'm going to give you some helps how to be a good pastor of these people. Because I love these people a whole lot. In fact, in the book of Acts, in chapter 20 of Acts, we find that Paul calls the elders of the church of Ephesians as he's like headed to Jerusalem and he says to them, hey, come meet me. I can't take time to come stop in the church because I'll never leave you guys if I do, but I want to see you before I go back because it's all about to go downhill for me from here. And so they come and meet with him because he loves them and he loves this church so incredibly much. Now... Not only is the book of Ephesians written to them. Not only are there two letters of Timothy written to them. But check it out. The book of Galatians was also written to them. It was written to all of these churches that were in this area. So this church had four letters that we still have today that were written to them. They were an incredibly desirable church. Not only that. Check this out. At the end of his life, John, the guy who wrote this letter for Jesus, right? Jesus pinned it to him, said, here's what it is. He wrote it down and John was hanging out in this church and Jesus's mother, Mary. If there was a church that I was going to go to, well, this is it, right? i would go to meet Mary and go hear about everything straight from mom. Oh yeah. I want to go hear from mom about Jesus. They were the church. But Jesus tells us that he had something against them. He says, you're doing all of this great stuff. You're doing all of these great works and you're tirelessly working for my name. But verse four, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. I know you're doing all this stuff in my name, but you've forgotten why. He said, you are a desirable church that has lost your desire. You are a desirable church that has lost your desire. You know, this week I got the pleasure of doing a first. I got to not only do a first premarital counseling this week, I got to do our first marriage of the new church this week. Didn't know we were going to do the marriage. Thanks, Carlos and Gabby. I appreciate it. And as I was sitting down with this couple, I I shared with them that there were two things that every couple should read together. The first one is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You should read about it. It's called the love chapter. And it tells you all of these things about what love is. And first you should read it just as it's written. And then you should substitute your name in there where the word love is written at. You want to know something that will be hard? Do that. In fact, it's darn near impossible. But Paul tells us that without love, without love, we are nothing. In fact, he says we're no more than a clanging cymbal or a banging gong. You know why we don't have cymbals and gongs up here? It's because they drown everything else out, right? You have to put like entire cages around drums in order to like bring down the clanging cymbals that are there. Hey, Wes, we love you, man, but if we gave you cymbals, it would be off the chain, all right? I know that. And so he says that there's nothing else. Here's the second thing that I tell every couple that they should read. Song of Solomon, it'll make you blush, all right? Because it is a love story, right? And in, in fact, Solomon captures this idea of desire in chapter 7, verse 10. He says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. His desire is for me. Jesus was upset with this church because they no longer desired what they had at first. You know what you don't have to tell a young couple that they need. There's lots of things you have to tell a young couple. Lots of things that they don't know. that They're like, oh, I'm going to have to work on these. I'm going to have to nurture these things. But there's one thing you don't have to tell a young couple that's about to get married. To desire each other. They got that part figured out. Right? I mean, they are in love. They've got desire down. You don't have to tell them that you got to desire each other. They are usually burning with desire. But Jesus says that, here it is, on the outside, this desirable-looking church had lost its desire. When Paul and I were were studying this together, not Paul the Apostle Paul, that'd be (laughs) awesome, right? But I, I got good buddy, Paul Sanchez, back there, and we studied these texts ahead of time together. And as we started talking about this, we said, you know what this church reminds me of? This is a Facebook church. Because on Facebook, everybody puts all their most desirable stuff out there. Everybody looks amazing on Facebook. You ever notice that, right? It's like the perfect picture with the perfect lighting on them. Their kids look amazing in their pictures on stuff. Nobody puts a bad picture up on Facebook, right? You don't want anybody to put a thumbs down next to your stuff. You want all the like likes next to it. And so everybody does, and Paul called it fake book. He's like, this is just fake book. That's all this is. Everybody's just giving all this fake stuff about what they are. And this church was just faking it. That's what they were doing. It all looked good on the outside. But Jesus said, he said, I'm over it. I'm over this fake thing that you got going. I'm over this fake book thing that's going on. In fact, he says it's so bad. He's so over it. Here's what he threatens them. He says, if you won't, If you won't fix this, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That doesn't mean that the church was about to lose its salvation. Right? I don't want you to get confused about what it is that Jesus is saying. A church, how could a church lose its salvation? Right? If you think about that one just logically for a second, it can't. An entire church can't lose its salvation. So Jesus must have been communicating something else. And here's what I think. Jesus was reminding the Ephesians about some of his teachings. See, back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells a story. He tells a story about a candle. And he says, you wouldn't take a candle and put a basket over it in order to hide its life. So that doesn't make any sense. And the reason is one of two things would happen. Either the basket's going to catch on fire, right? Because you just put this open flame and a basket on top of it. What do you expect is going to happen? Or the second thing that's going to happen is the candle's going to go out. It's no longer going to be burning at all. And you see, Jesus said, Look, he said, I want you to understand that in the same way, the same way that Jesus said that that light, that candle, it's not for you, but it's a light for the whole city. Right? He says that you put a candle on a hillside so that everybody can see it. And Jesus says, look, here's what's happening because you're fake. Everybody knows it. And you're losing your witness to all the people that are around because you no longer have desire burning. You're just doing it. You're just going through the motions and doing all of this stuff. He says, it won't be much longer, and your witness is going to be removed, and I'm just going to be the one that takes it away. Because I can't stand what it is that you're doing, and how it is that you're leading people and turning them away from who I am. Ouch! Ouch! You know, almost everybody that I read as I looked at this passage um and I think really our first thought and our first instinct, as we come to it, when we read about this idea of a first love, as we go, I need to love Jesus more. That's what he's saying here, right? I need to just, they just need to love Jesus more. And that's what was going on. And you know, I I think that that's partly true. I mean, I think it's totally true that we need to love Jesus. But I don't think that's all that Jesus was, was trying to instruct them on here. If you, in fact, if you were with this, Back in November, then you heard us talk about uh, Jesus and the greatest commandment of all time. If you weren't, let me recap just a second. Jesus was asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered. And he said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind." But he didn't stop there because he said, and the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. As we went through an entire series of that, we said, look, those two things are inextricably linked. You can't do one without the other. And so when Jesus is talking to them that you have left your first love, I think that it's a great commandment that he has against them. You're no longer living out the great commandment. You're not loving God and you're not loving people you're doing all of these things in my name but you don't love me and you don't love them you know what Jesus said to him that the remedy was to remember you know in Ephesians chapter 4 you know what Paul talks to the Ephesians church about love one another love one another Most of us, most of us in this room, we've walked into a church before that didn't have any love. It was cold, it was stale, maybe nobody talked to you. Maybe, I mean most of us today, we research things before we go into a church and so on the outside they looked really good, their Facebook posts were good, their website was amazing, their preacher was okay, their music sounded good, and so you walked in the doors and nobody said a word to you. It was just like, it didn't matter. You didn't matter. And you walked away. And you're like, there's just something missing from that church. Yeah, that's what Jesus is saying to to this church. But the great thing is, is that He doesn't just leave them hanging out there with this is what's wrong with you, go fix it. He gives them a remedy. In fact, if you ever wondered if Jesus was a Baptist preacher, here's my evidence right here, right? He gives them three points and they all start with the same letter, at least in English, all right? We won't talk about the Greek just yet. But he says to them, he says, remember therefore where you have fallen from, repent and do the works you had done at first. In other words, he says, remember, repent, and redo redo or repeat the actions you've done at first that'll preach right he tells the the ephesians remember what they had done where they had come from he tells them repent repent from where they are currently at in other words take the vehicle turn around and go the total opposite direction to get back to where you came from And he says, do the works, redo the works that you did at the very beginning. Jesus wanted their desire to be for him. He wanted their desire to be for those that are around them. He wanted them to be a great commandment church. I shared last week that I believe that God is calling us to be a great church. Now we're not there yet. Right. we probably won't ever reach there. Right. But here's the first step. Here's the first step of what I think for it it takes for us to be a great church. We have to become a great commandment church. Here's what I mean by that. First, a great church is made up of individuals who are seeking God first in all that they do. They're striving to love him with all that God has given them. They're striving to love their neighbors, whether it's their physical, literal neighbors, or whether it's somebody else that they've chosen and picked out that they want to pursue with a God-given passion. And they're going after them to share with them, to demonstrate to them the love that God has given to them. They're turning that towards them. And here's what happens. Along the way, along the way, these kind of individuals who are doing that are going to invite those people to come to church to see other people who are doing the same kind of a thing. In fact, as you pursue people with that kind of love, they're eventually gonna ask you the question, well, where do you go to church at? I wanna go with you, because I something's different about you. And so, eventually, eventually whether you're pursuing this person for a week a month a year they come in the doors of a church and I think that brings me to the second part of what I think a great commandment church looks like it's filled with people who have a heart for their friends and their friends friends it's filled with people who have a heart for their friends and their friends' friends. You know what I think the scariest part about inviting somebody to come to church is? It's not what the person's response is gonna be. It's what happens when they get to church. Right? Rick Warren tells a story about growing up. His dad was the, the preacher. And he said, I would get all excited about things that were going on at church and I would invite a friend to church and they would come, and then it was like the weirdest day from I don't know where. He's like, my dad would like teach on gun control or sex that day or something. And are just like, I can't believe that I invited my friend to this today. And then the very next week, they he'd come back, and it would be an amazing message. And everybody would be friendly and welcoming and warm. And he's like, why can't I invite my friend back to this day instead of that day? He's like, it would have been so much better if my friend could have been here today. Oh. So true we've all been there and I think that's the scariest part right when we go to invite somebody to church we go well, what I hope it's good today I hope everybody's nice to them today you know what I found Here is what I found is that most people don't come back because of the music sorry Aaron you it gets better Most people don't come back because of the preaching. It's good. I'm relieved by that one just a little bit, just so that you know. Right? Because most people, most people will come back to a place if they feel welcomed and loved. And so a church that is filled with people who care about their friends' friends. When you walk in the door with your friend who you're nervous and excited about being there. And all of your friends that are in this room come up and they're like, oh, I'm so glad that you're here today. It's so good to meet you. I've heard about you from whoever it is that brought you. You know what that does? That person goes, I'm loved. I'm appreciated here. I'll come back again because they were glad that I was here. That's what I think a great commandment church looks like. It's a both and. It's us living out the great commandment in our individual lives. But it's then in turn us being inviting and welcoming for that person who walks in the doors for the very first time. it's a church filled with people who make a beeline for the person that they've never met before to go shake their hand and tell them that they're glad that they were here today i know it seems weird but it's loving and i love this here's how jesus ends the letter he says he who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the church that hears this, Jesus says, I'm going to grant them to eat from the tree of life. Now, I think that there are very much future implications that go on with what it is that he's saying right there. But I also think that there are right now implications. You go, wait, what do you mean that there's right now implications about the tree of life and about the, the garden of paradise? Listen, there was no better place. There was no place that was more like heaven than when God created the garden of Eden with the tree of life. in it. And I believe more than anything that if there's anywhere on earth that should look like a garden of Eden, a paradise, a place that has life, is filled with the life of Jesus Christ that is filled with abundant life. It's a church. When Jesus said that we should pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven he was saying listen, my people who are following me who are called by my name, you should be bringing down a piece of heaven onto earth that all people could taste it and see that I am good. What an incredible charge we have. But oh, what a church that would be a church that is filled with people who are like, my purpose, my desire is to make this place as close to heaven as I can this side of eternity that's a great church and that's a great commandment church listen a great church is not a perfect church a great church is not a perfect church but it is a loving church let's pray Father, I thank you. I thank you for these these words and this challenge today. And God, I pray that as we lean into what it means to be a great church, God, that we would seize a hold of being a great commandment church, church that seeks to love you with everything that we have with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, and with our strength. God, that we wouldn't forget the second part. To love our neighbors the way that we love ourselves. I pray that we would be a loving church. I pray that as people walk in, that they would feel the warmth of your love. God, that they would know that beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're accepted here. It doesn't matter what's going on in their life. God, it all hell may be breaking loose, and they may feel abandoned. God, may this be a refuge, a place where they can come and know that they are loved. God, that that love would point people straight. maybe sitting here in this room and you've heard this charge and you're like you know what I, I don't know if I know this Jesus personally like you talked about I don't know that he's a part of my life daily and the things that are going on but I think maybe I'm interested In that. At the end today I'll be in the back of the room I'd love for you to come talk to me about inviting Jesus to be personal in your life have the kind of relationship with him where he leads you, where he guides you most importantly most importantly that he saves you from your sin so that your desire would be for him as his desire is for you God we just give you all of the glory in the Precious.